Morning, everyone. Good to see you today. Before I uh, get into the message for today, I wanted to uh, make you aware of something that we plan to focus on as a church this year. Now, the statement that best summarizes what we are about this year and every year is our mission statement. So let me just put our mission statement back on the screen. It is thoughtfully inviting broken people to experience transformation in Christ. Now, we are all broken people, so we have a lot of experience with what it's like to be broken in different ways. And we have experienced, in varying degrees, the power of Jesus Christ to begin to put the pieces of our life back together again. Now, none of us are completely together again yet. That's what heaven's for. But this side of heaven, we've experienced a lot of help. And so as a church, we want to be a place where more and more individuals and families are restored, begin to experience the the power that God has to restore us. But that dream that we have, that statement is just going to be a statement, something that we really like, unless we do something about it. So we need to take regular steps to move towards it. So every year, at about this time, we plan to have something that we're going to focus on for the next year as a church that will help us to continue to become the type of church that we believe that God wants us to be. So this is our focus this year. It's two statements. I'll put it on the screen behind me. The first kind of paints the picture of what we hope will happen this year. We want to become a church where the gospel, that is the good news about Jesus, moves out from us really like a groundswell that brings restoration out into this community. And then the next statement is something very specific. Over the next year, we will spend 4,000 hours praying for opportunities to both demonstrate, show, and then speak up and share the gospel with 1,000 people in our community. Can you imagine if we actually were able to pull that off? A thousand people in our community. That would be incredible what God might do through that. So we decided on this as our focus because in order for this to happen, God needs to really move in people's hearts. And the starting point is we begin to pray. We could get really busy doing all kinds of things, but if God isn't behind it, we're just going to spend a lot of time just kind of spinning our wheels. So this year we are aiming as a group to collectively spend 4,000 hours praying for the opportunity to demonstrate, to help out in the area of God's love, and then to share the gospel with a 1,000 people in our community. Now, because this is our focus, we're going to be mentioning this several times throughout the year, and there'll be a lot of different opportunities uh, for you to engage in participating in this. But the first step we're going to take is something that we're calling Pray for Five. Now, here's the idea. You pray for five individuals in our community who you regularly interact with that as best you know, they're not part of any church. So if you're praying for someone, maybe a family member who lives outside of the community, that's fine. Keep praying for them. But what we're asking everyone to do is is to identify five individuals in your circle of movement that are part of this community. You interact with them, and they're not part of any church. And then we're asking all of us to pray for these individuals for five minutes each day for five out of seven days a week for five weeks. So five people, five minutes, five days, five weeks. Now, some of you might not be able to think of five people right off the top of your head, and that's fine. I still want you to participate in this. And what you can do is begin by praying for the two or the three people that are pretty clearly um, in your area of influence. You regularly interact with them. They're not part of any church. So start just with the two or three, and then use the time that you're praying, these five days out of the seven, to ask that God would bring more people into your life that you might be able to show and share the gospel with. So here's how it's going to work. On your connection card, Elliot mentioned the back of that card, there's a little 
box that says sign me up for. So, you, so if you'd like to be a part of this, in that box, just simply put pray for five. Pray for five. And if you do that, then tomorrow we're going to send you a text message. So make sure we've got your phone number on this. This is how we're going to communicate to you is through text. And in that text message is going to be a link uh, with ideas of what to pray for, uh, tips on how to stay consistent in this, and more ideas as we go through these next five weeks. And we're going to um, announce this over the next two Sundays. And so a week from this Monday, uh, the 30th of September, we're going to begin the five weeks of prayer. We're going to start that a week from this Monday. So let me just do the math real quick. Let's say 200 people participate in this. I'm hoping and praying that many more than 200 will, but let's just say 200. That's five minutes, five people, five days, five weeks. That's 125 minutes times 200 participants. That's a total of 417 hours over the five weeks. That's not 4,000, but it's a good start in the direction of 4,000. Again, just imagine what God might do if we focus and pray by name for that many people and for the opportunity to really serve and then to speak up and share the gospel with them. So I invite you to join us on that. And again, just let us know on the back of the connection card. All right, so let's turn to the message today. You can use your listening guide. That'll help you follow along. We're talking about gender in this message series. Now, obviously, it's a very hot topic in our culture. There is no shortage of ideas out there. There's no shortage of material that you can read, stuff you can watch, That'll give you all kinds of ideas about what gender is and what it means. But we gather here each week uh, to listen to what God has to say. We hear a lot about what everyone else has to say, but the purpose of this gathering is to open up the Bible and consider, now, what, what might God say on these issues? Now, if you're new to all this, I just have to warn you that the Bible tells a very different story about gender than the story that we're being told right now in our culture. And so we are looking at the creation story in the Bible. It's found in Genesis chapter 1 through 3. We began last week with just the short version of the story. We moved a little bit beyond that, but I want to kind of recap a little bit of what we mentioned last week. Here's the short version of the creation story of gender. Genesis 1, verse 27 says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So what this is saying is down deep in the core of who we are at a soul level, are two very important realities that we can never get away from. Reality number one, the foundation of who we are, is we are made in the image of God. Now, there's a lot that can be said about that. But probably the best summary statement is this. We need God. We need God. We don't do well over time without God. We can't escape that. That's just who we are. Then next, what this verse says, at the core of who we are, after we are made in the image of God, the next statement is made is, is our gender. We are either male or female. Again, we're going to be spending these next five weeks talking more about what that means. But I think the best summary of it is we need each other. We don't just need men. We don't just need women. We need both. We need each other. We do not do well over time without the help and the input of each other. We need the other gender to reflect God and do his will here on earth. They both have equal value and equal importance. Now, floating on the surface of these two below-the-surface realities is us, the individual, kind of represented by a person in a boat here. And it's floating on the water because there's a lot of differences between individuals. We have different personalities. We've been exposed to and raised in different environments that have different experiences. 
And we have different preferences that we develop over time. And all of these combine together to make us the unique individual that we are. And so within all that uniqueness, there's a lot of range for the individual to move, to float. There's a lot of differences between us that are, that are beyond just gender differences. And most of the conversation and the debate right now that's going on in our culture is about the boat, about the surface issues, the stereotypes, what men uh, and women can and cannot do. And what we're doing in this series is, is we're not looking at the surface. We're, we're looking below the surface to what it is that anchors a man and a woman to their gender and to God. And the question I want to address this week and then next week also is, what is it then that strengthens and weakens the masculine and the feminine soul? Now, the answers to this question for both men and women are not exclusive. It's kind of like men's and women's vitamins. You can go to the store and you can get a bottle of men's vitamins, you can get a bottle of women's vitamins, and if you look at the back, you'll recognize there's a whole lot of similarity. Mostly they're the same, and that's because physiologically, our bodies require many of the same nutrients for us to thrive. And the same thing is true for the soul. Being made in the image of God, we require much of the same things as men and women in order for us to thrive on a soul level. But the reason there are men's vitamins and women's vitamins is because there are some unique needs in order for each gender to thrive, whether it's physically or at a soul level. You know, according to the National Institutes of Health, there are unique physiological needs for each gender. Women, for example, tend to need more iron. But simply because women need more iron and a, it's more easily depleted from them, that doesn't mean that men don't need any iron. No, they need iron too. It's just a unique challenge for women that's a little different than men. And it's very similar to the male and female soul. So I wanted to mention this because as I talk about what it is that supplements the strengthening of the male soul this week and then the female soul next week, I'm not saying that the opposite gender doesn't need any of this. It gets a complete pass in these areas or has no ability in these areas. No, what, what I am saying is that a deficit of these items is particularly damaging to the gender in question. So in the creation story, God identifies the unique power and weakness that is associated to each gender. Today we're going to look at men. Next week we're going to look at women. Now, because we're talking about men today, that doesn't mean the women can just take this time to plan their week. Now, I think this is really helpful, whether the gender we're talking about is your gender or not. Because if we are to work together, which we must, it is helpful not only to know our own strengths and weaknesses, but also the strengths and weaknesses of the opposite gender, so we can partner and work together in different ways. So let's begin looking at the first item that supplements masculine power, and that is taking responsibility. Now, again, we all need this. Men and women need this. But if men don't take responsibility, it is particularly devastating to them and the cultures that they're a part of. Genesis 2, 4 through 7, we read this. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. 
The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. So notice the context in which Adam, the first man, was created. He was created in the middle of an agricultural crisis. That's what's being presented here. No shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up. Why? Well, God gives two reasons. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth. Well, that makes sense. And there was no man to work the ground. So what God did next is address those two issues. So God caused streams to come up from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. And he formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now, Everything in the creation story is there for a purpose. Whenever you read the creation story and you think, well, that's interesting or that's odd, there's a reason for it. And this seems like an odd context for the forming of the first man. Why not just create the first man? Why not, I mean, why have this agricultural crisis and then create the man to address this? It's because God was making a clear point. You know, I can understand why plants need water to grow, but why exactly do they need a man to grow? Well, they, they really don't do that. So what is God doing here? What he's doing is he is attaching the first man and therefore every man after him to the land itself. What does that mean? The Old Testament was written in the Hebrew language. This was the language that God chose to reveal the creation story and reveal himself through. And there's a reason for it. The language matters. The Hebrew word for land is Adama. What name did God give the first man? Adam. It's a short version. It's really kind of a play on words. What God was really calling Adam was little dirt. Adam is land, or Dama is land, and Adam is little dirt. So let's follow all this dirt imagery. So Adam is formed from what? The dirt. And he's called what? Little dirt. And he's assigned to do what? Farm the dirt. So he's pretty much all about the dirt. So what does this mean? Is every man supposed to go out and buy a few acres and start farming? No. The the attachment is not to the molecules of the dirt, but to what land itself represents. You see, land has always been one of the clearest ways that we can represent the borders, the outline of our responsibility. You know, I I live next to a neighbor. I don't mow his yard. He doesn't mow my yard. Why? That's his land. This is my land. Now, there's some times where I kind of want to mow his land, but if I ever go over and start mowing his land, we might have a problem. Why? He'd come out and say, what are you doing? Like, well, I didn't like the way you're taking care of your land. No, no, I don't want to do that. It's, it's his responsibility, and my land is my responsibility. So what this is saying in the creation story is at the core of who they are, men need something in this world that they are responsible for. It doesn't actually have to be a literal acre, but, but something that has their name on it, something that they, they are responsible for, something that has a border and outline to it that they can say, this is my responsibility. That supplements the power of the masculine soul. They need a place where they work and see something important produced out of what they do. 
You know, the Hebrew word that's used here for working the ground literally means to serve and be enslaved by something. It doesn't mean that you just kind of show up, do a little bit of work, and then go do your own thing. The idea is that, no, you, you can't leave the land. You are now enslaved by this. Now, if you own any literal land, you know this is true. If you own a house, you take deed to a house, you own it, right? But practically, the truth is it owns you, doesn't it? I mean, the mortgage is due. You can't just say, you know, I'd really rather do something else with that money this, this month. No, it owns you. If something breaks, needs to be repaired on that land, you can't ask anyone else to do it. You've got to do it or pay for it. If it needs to be maintained, if the grass needs to be mowed and something needs to be painted and the hot water heater needs to be replaced, that's on you. You are the owner. So over and over again, the things that you own enslave you. They determine what you do. You've you got to take care of this. You've got to farm this. You've got to fix this. And a man needs this. A man needs something that enslaves him, and here's the key, by his own choice. If you try to enslave a man, that never works. Men get really angry and do everything they can to break out of a trap. But it's when men of their own choice say, you know what? That's mine. I'm going to own this. I'm going to take responsibility for this. That's what a man needs, to be enslaved by his own choice, by his own decision. This is part of what happens whenever a man decides to marry a woman. You know, what's often said when a man marries a woman is what? He is becoming tied down. That's what's often said. He's being tied down. There's some more derogatory ways that's being described sometimes, just chain and things like that, but he's being tied down. You never hear that. I've never heard that said of the opposite. I've never heard of a woman who's engaged. Oh, you're about to be tied down. Why'd you say it to a guy? Because it's a pretty accurate description of what, what's happening with the guy. I mean, I remember the day before I got married, some of my friends said something like, oh, enjoy your last day of freedom. <laughs> you know, that, that was not really a great image of marriage, but it's, it's fairly accurate, right? I mean, a man who gets married is no longer free to roam around and do whatever he wants to do. He's got a wife now. He's got some responsibility. He's got a woman to love and a woman to help and partner with and care for. He, he's marked out an area where he needs to hang around. And if God grants them children, well, now he's even more tied down than he ever was before. You know, what, what's happened is the deed to his land has just been expanded. He's added a few more acres. And they take his name. It's an indication of he's responsible for these. But here's the thing. Being tied down is the best possible thing that can happen to a man. It's what every man needs. They need to be tied down. Because at, that is the place where God tends to do his deepest work in a man's life. Men don't usually grow much until they start taking responsibility in some area of their life. It doesn't have to be marriage, but in some area. Because it's at that location, it's at the border of that responsibility where God will meet them there. Irresponsibility is not good, whether you're a man or a woman. But when men are without land, 
without responsibility, it is particularly devastating for them and then for their culture and for the world. Let me give you a couple examples. How did international terrorism emerge? Well, you can look at the ideological conflicts in the Middle East that drove it, but every idea, every war needs its foot soldiers. And where does international terrorism always emerge? It almost always rises in places where young men have few prospects for work or for wives. They have nothing to lose because they have no land. They have no responsibilities. They're not tied down at all, and that makes a man particularly dangerous. I mean, bring it home for us. The greatest domestic threat, the FBI says right now in our nation, is lone wolf gunmen. Well, who are they? So far, 96% of them have been men. Usually, they're young, single men without jobs that demand much. If they work at all, they're not jobs that really demand much from them. Now, I'm not saying that if you're here and you're a young man and you're single and you're unemployed, oh, watch out, you're dangerous. No, no. Those are the extreme examples of where this can go. For most men, it doesn't. They are dangerous, but not that dangerous. But what I am saying is it's not good for a man to be without land, without responsibilities. It's not good for that culture. Right now, there's a gender crisis in China. There are in their 20s, in China, there are 34 million more men than women. It's because of the one birth policy and the abortion of girls as a result of that. 34 million more men than women. 34 million men who will never get married because there's no one to marry. And what's happening as a result of that is not just the sadness of marriage. Crime is rapidly increasing in China particularly sex trafficking crime. Similar things happening in India. Just look it up. You can do the research. It is not good for a man. It is not good for a culture when men have no land and no responsibilities. They become dangerous. As men, we need to be tied down by our own choice. You can't force them to do it. We've got we to choose to do it. So if you're a man, take your vitamins. Be responsible. Whatever your responsibility is, lean into it. Own it. Work diligently whatever you're responsible for, and your masculine soul will be strengthened. But something has happened that affects the land that men work, the responsibility that they take. Sin turns out to change farming in a really challenging way. After Adam and Eve sinned, God described the impact that that sin was going to have on the world. And he described it particularly in the way it was going to impact women, which is very different than the way it's going to impact men. We're going to look at how it impacts women next week, but this is what, it's, what God said about the impact it's going to have on men in Genesis 3, 17-19. To Adam, he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat. We're going to talk a little bit more about this in just a moment. This is what's going to happen. Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since 
From it you were taken, and here we're back to the dirt, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. And now forever you're going to struggle with the land. It's going to produce weeds. You're going you're to come up with good stuff out of the land, but it's now going to be a strain by the sweat of your brow. It's going to be a challenge. Why? Why is the ground affected by sin? Well, the ground, the land, represents the location, the place in which God says, I'll meet you there. It's the location of male partnership. I'm not saying God can't do anything apart from the land that a man takes responsibility, but that's the place where God says, that's the sweet spot of where I'm going to really work in your life. You, you show up here every day, I'll show up here every day, and you're going to grow. And because that's the location, that's wherever the consequences show up the biggest. Because sin does what? Sin breaks our partnership with God. Sin is the decision to say, I'm not going to do what God wants done. I'm not going to partner with him. I'm going to do my own thing. That has consequences. And the location of responsibility, the land, is where men feel it most. So the place of partnership with God and men is now the location of struggle. The land that a man takes deed to will now be a source of struggle. If a man marries, he's going to choose someone that he loves. And there'll be a lot of good that comes out of that. But that will, as long as he's married, be a real challenge for him. You know, those of us that are married know this. You don't just stand up and say, I do, and then oh, the future unfolds with angels singing all the way. It's, no, it's a lot of challenge. If God grants a man a family, those kids will be a deep joy to him. But they're going to also cause him to scratch his head more than anything else as he tries to figure out how to parent them and raise them and handle the challenges. If a man decides to do meaningful work and, and build a career and make an impact in this world with something, that's not just going to happen because he gets a degree and then the future just unfolds for him. It's going to be challenge after challenge after challenge. He is not going to wake up every day with just this raging excitement about the work he gets to do. There'll be some of that, but there'll be a whole lot of, oh boy, I'm not looking forward to today. There'll just be a lot of challenges. So what happens to a man who decides that he really doesn't want to partner with God? He doesn't want to reconcile his relationship with God. What happens? Well, that man will again and again and again do everything he can to try to leave the land. He will become passive. Every man struggles with this. Even those who decide they do want to partner with God, they'll be tempted with this. And this is masculine weakness. You know, the counterpart to the strength is the weakness of passivity. The strength is taking responsibility. The opposite is not taking responsibility, going passive. You know, it's hard work to pull weeds. It's really hard work to solve problems at work. It's really challenging to face a wife who's upset with you. A lot of guys decide, you know, I'm... I'm just not going to go home as early tonight because I don't want to face that. It's a real challenge to deal with kids who are having problems. Because just like marriage problems, they don't just instantly get fixed. They're ongoing problems. And this is why every single man in this room knows the call of the wild. 
the call, the, the draw to leave their land and pursue some fantasy. You know, it's interesting, the phrase that's commonly used in our culture is, the grass is always greener on the other side of the what? Fence. What does the fence mark? Your land. Now, we know that the grass isn't greener, but it's hard to see someone else's weeds up close. You can see your weeds up close. So at a distance, that grass looks great. It looks weed-free. It is not, but that's the lie of a fantasy. So some men pursue fantasies physically and practically. They get into drugs. They get into sexual immorality. They, they move from job to job, marriage to marriage, relationship to relationship. Others do it internally. They don't leave their land. They don't leave their wives. They don't leave their families. They don't leave their jobs. They don't leave their churches. They just sit down on the land and stop working it. They start coasting. You know one of the ways you can identify a man who's going passive on his land, who's coasting, is he starts complaining more and more and more. He gets angrier and angrier. Why is he complaining? Because these stupid weeds won't go away. A man who's taking responsibility sees another weed, it's like, all right, I've got to bend down and deal with that. A man who doesn't want to take responsibility gets angrier and angrier as more and more weeds show up and starts complaining more and more. They begin to think more and more about what they are owed in life rather than the work that needs to be done. If you start thinking about all that you're owed in life, you will go passive. What we need to do as men is just, well, there's another weed. Guess it needs to be pulled. And just do the work. Now, whenever men go passive, marriages fall apart. Kids struggle. And churches fail. Now, the same thing happens when women go passive. They just don't do it as much as men do. So if you're a man and you've left your land and you can't get back to it, that's something to ask God's mercy on. But you you can't go back and do life over again. All you can do is start taking responsibility now for what God has given you responsibility over now. And God will meet you there and build the future from there. Now, the second supplement to masculine power is remembering God. The second masculine power is remembering God. Now, again, we all need this. Remember the vitamins? This is not just male vitamins. Everybody, men and women, need this. But if men don't remember God, it is particularly devastating for them and for the future. Genesis 2, 16 through 17, we read this. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, notice that God commanded the man. Well, why not the woman also? That's not fair. Well, if you read through the story, you realize she hasn't even been created yet. She wasn't around to tell. Well, why didn't God wait? I mean, this seems like a pretty big commandment. This is the very first commandment that God ever gave. The future of the human race in this world really hinged on whether or not they were going to take us off the cliff of sin or not. This was a big deal. So why didn't God just wait until the woman who was there could hear it directly from him? Well, again, every detail in the story makes a point. 
God is making a very important point about gender here. The first clue to this idea comes out of the short version of the creation story in Genesis 1.27. God chose the Hebrew word for male when he said he created the male and female. The Hebrew word for male means the remembering one. That's what the word means, the remembering one. So God identified man as the remembering ones. Well, what is it that men are supposed to remember exactly? Where their keys are? You know, where stuff in the house is? Well, if that's the case, we're in trouble. When it comes to things like that, my wife is a much better rememberer than I am. I am forever going, where's this? Well, but again, this is not about remembering just a list of trivial things. Just like it was about the land and the farming and the dirt, this points to something far deeper than just memory capacity. We see this in action in Genesis 3-6 when sin entered into the world. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Now, for the longest time, for some reason, I'd read this story, and I thought he was off, I don't know, doing something else in the garden, and she snuck off and did this and then brought the fruit to him, but that's not what happened. The key phrase is what? Who was with her? The guy was standing right there. So the question you have to ask is, why didn't he speak up? I mean, the whole future of humanity is hanging in the balance, and the dude says nothing. Why? Well, I have a pretty good idea why. No one likes to say no to anyone, let alone his wife. So I imagine Adam didn't want to do that either. Now, whenever you say no to anyone and your wife, it always makes things tense, at least. And often it leads to conflict. So I am pretty sure what happened is Adam saw Eve reaching for this fruit. I don't think he forgot what God had said. I don't think he was having a memory lapse, sitting there thinking, wait, I'm supposed to remember something, it seems like, about this. Seems like, seems like there was a tree thing and a fruit thing that God told me about. What was it he said? Oh, no, I, how would you forget that? It's, you know, it's not a list of, 50 commands, it's one. So I I think he remembered it. I think he just ignored it. I think Eve was reaching for the fruit, and he thought, well, I could say no, but no. Let's just see what happens. Last year, I heard my granddaughter being told by her mother to get into her car seat. That's a common thing. And she began to slowly meander her way towards her car seat, and I was positioned so that I heard her say something very softly under her breath that no one else heard. And this is what she said. I'm going to pretend I didn't hear that. <laughs> That's what she said. Now, one of the helpful things about younger children is they haven't learned how to keep that all to themselves. <laughs> what they think often comes out. But when she said that, I thought, oh. And then I thought, Oh, yeah, I I know that one. I do that. I mean, that's really what happens every time any one of us sins. God has spoken really clearly on a bunch of stuff. But we really want that, like Eve did. 
And so we say, you know, I'm, we may not put the words together, but I'm just going to pretend that I didn't hear that. And we go forward. Now, men and women both do this. So why is it so devastating if a man chooses to forget what God has said? It's devastating when either men or women do this, when either of them sin. But why, why is it so devastating for a man to do this? It's because male forgetfulness carries with it a larger legacy impact into the future. When men forget, the future is impacted. God often describes himself to the people of Israel as the God of their fathers, he says. He never calls himself the God of their mothers. He goes on to say again and again, this is just one example, he is the God of Abraham, he's the God of Isaac, he's the God of Jacob. He never says that he is the God of Sarah, that he's the God of Rebecca, and that he's the God of Rachel, their wives. Well, why not? I mean, if you read through the stories, you can tell he was as much the God of Abraham as he was of Sarah as his wife. He loves her as much and cares for her as much, and she's as integral to the story as Abraham was. So why say it this way? Is this just the Bible being patriarchal again? No. What's happening is God is describing reality. Kids really are, they for the most part, the God of their fathers becomes the God of the kids. That's just the way it works. You know, when sociologists ask what factors determine whether or not a person's religion is carried to the next generation, there is always one critical factor, and that is the father. It's the religious practice of the father that, above all, determines the future participation of the children. Now, I've read study after study after study over the decades on this. The most recent study I read was conducted by the Swiss. So let me just share their results. What they discovered in their study is that if both parents attend church regularly, 33% of the kids will as adults. Now that may sound like a big drop-off, but European culture is not friendly to Christianity. Our culture is is heading that way. So if both mom and dad attend church regularly, What's interesting about this study, they they track church attendance, not what people said they believed. But if both attend church regularly, 33% of the kids will. If just mothers do and fathers don't, it dropped all the way down to 2%. 2%. What if you reverse it? What if just the fathers attend? Well, the result of that is 38%. Why more? I mean, the study I read, actually, they were mystified. So you got both parents going to church. 33% of the kids will end up attending church as adults. And if, if just the dad goes, it goes up five percentage point? Why? They didn't know. So I don't know, but I have a guess. Whenever a husband and a wife attend church, there are some percentage of the guys that attend under duress. It's all the way back to that, I don't want to say no to my wife thing. So they're not really into it. Their, their bodies, their carcasses are here, <laughs> but their hearts and their brains are doing other things. 
I'm not, I'm not looking at anyone in particular. I'm just scanning. I have no idea. And you know the thing about kids? They smell that stuff out. They know. They know this is mom's thing. If this is not dad's thing, the strong message to them is it's not a big deal. It's just mom doing her God thing. So that's my guess. So, so if you have a, a father attending with his kids all by himself, you know what you know about that father? He really wants to be here. If you have a couple coming together, it probably is he really wants to be here, but you don't know. He might not really want to be here, and the kids know this. Now, if you're a single mom, don't despair. God is not bound by the percentages of sociological research. And I know of many, many examples in this church of kids who have decided to be a part of this as adults who were brought here by just their mother. So this doesn't mean moms doesn't matter what you do. But this kind of study, and I, I've, I've seen these studies over and over again. In fact, if, if you want to do more reading on this, there's a book by David Blankenhorn called Fatherless America. It's not a Christian book. It's a sociological book. Study after study after study that talks about the impact of absent fathers. It's not being talked about much now. But here's, here's the, the point. If men forget, the future tends to forget. That's just the way it is. If men forget, the future forgets. So here's masculine weakness in this area. It's silence. It's silence. Now, it's not that men need to become more chatty. That's probably not going to happen for most guys. I mean, there are men that are more verbal than others. That's fine. But this is not talking about the volume of words. This is talking about the need for men to reclaim their God-given responsibility to remember who God is and what he said and then speak up in the critical moment. That's the key. In the critical moment to say and do what God says. I mean, Adam could have been real verbal that morning, but at, I don't know when it was, but let's say it was 2 o'clock in the afternoon, he's standing there and his wife's reaching out for the free. It doesn't matter how many words he said before. Now is the time to say something, guy. Speak up. I know it's risky. The scene of the first man standing there in silence when something needs to be said has been repeated over and over and over and over again. Men refusing to speak up in the moment of pressure to say and then do what is right before God. And every time that happens, the male soul is weakened and the future is diminished. It's like kryptonite to Superman. Silence is. So how, how can we regain our memory? Well, whether it's men or women, it always begins with confession. You know what confession is? Confession basically is us saying, Oh, yeah, I remember. This is wrong. God said this is wrong, and I admit it. When a man sins, he's doing more than just the act. He is becoming the forgetting one. The remembering one is becoming the forgetting one. When he sins, he's forgetting about his God and what God has said. If he's married, he's forgetting all about his wife 
and the impact that this is going to have on her. If he has kids, he's forgetting about them and the impact it will have on them. And what a man tends to do is he compounds the act of forgetting with the commitment to hide his sin, the commitment to forget and make sure that nobody ever sees it. Men tend to think, I'll just sin over here and everything will be okay over here. But what happens is when a man forgets, it introduces the disease of deception into his soul. He begins to believe more and more lies. Deception enters the bloodstream of, stream of his soul, affecting his ability to perceive the truth. He becomes, over time, blind. And these men are now farming in the dark, and that's almost impossible to do. They can't even see where the weeds are. Their marriage keeps having problems, and they literally don't have a clue as to why. Most of them don't even know their marriage is in trouble. Their kids need help. Their kids need guidance. But they literally don't know what to say. The truth is we can't isolate one area of deception in our life and keep this area clear. That's because truth is like light. Either the switch is turned on or it's off. You know, it's like this room. You can't just make one section here dark and it's not, you know, everything's dark. No, it's, it's either lights are on or lights are off. That's the way deception works. Either we've turned the switch on or it's off. So confession is the key that impacts a man in the area of truth because it, it turns the switch back on. It's a man, whenever he confesses a sin, it's, it's him turning the light back on and the light begins to come up. So if you're a man, one of the best things you can do is to find another man that you can trust and confess your sins. Turn the light on and begin to get help in those areas. If you're hiding something, it's not isolating. It's, it's, it's dimming your whole perspective on life. So men, we are not just the sperm donors of the future. We are the truth tellers. And if we don't tell the truth, the future won't know the truth. We are the remembering ones. Now, it's not that women can't do this and do it well or shouldn't do this. But God has given men the kind of voice that has the power to speak over the land that they're responsible for and see it echo into the eternity. That's the power that men have been given. Next week, we'll talk about the equally amazing power that women have been given. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for us as men in this room. Pray that you would help us to take and bear the load of responsibility, to say no to the call of the wild and the fantasy to continue to pull up the weeds and deal with the problems as they come. God, we can't do that by ourselves. We need your help. And so as we bear responsibility, we ask for your help, that you would meet us there and empower us. And then as men, we also, over and over again, we are given the opportunity to just speak up and say, no, I'm not going to do that. 
Or no, this, this just isn't right. Or to say something to our kids. Or say something that really helps and encourages our wives or our friends. God, I pray that you would help us to, to speak up, to regain our voice in the critical moments. We pray for the future. It appears to be dimming. God, we pray that men would step up and turn the lights on. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.